Hi, listeners. This is an experimental uh, bonus episode of the show uh, where my colleague Howie Lempel and I are going to try to share what we think we know and don't know about the new coronavirus that's all over the news right now. We had a couple of reasons for recording this on a Sunday. Um, my colleague Howie and I had spent a bunch of our own time uh, looking into the issue uh, as we kind of have our own amateur interest in pandemic control. And as a result, we thought we could put it together fairly easily and thought it might save some of you listeners time on doing your own research. It's also, I think, instructive to, to walk through the process of uh, trying to pull together many different pieces of uh, weak evidence and, and often conflicting evidence in order to try to make the, the best forecast that we can about uh, important events in, in real time. And thirdly, uh, if there's a future pandemic that actually matters more than this one uh, and requires more of a reaction, uh, it could look similar in the early stages. At least it could look similar to what this virus did two or three weeks ago. So this is a chance to uh, learn more about how that situation would, would appear. If this topic interests you a lot and you'd like to learn more about pandemic control and careers in that area, you can go back to episode four, uh, Howie Lempel on pandemics that kill hundreds of millions and how to stop them. And if you like that one, you can continue listening to episode 12, Dr. Beth Cameron works to stop you dying in a pandemic. Here's what keeps her up at night. And episode 27, Dr. Tom Inglesby on careers and policies that reduce global catastrophic biological risks. If you have any feedback on this episode, you can send it to podcast at 80,000hours.org. All right, without further ado, here's Howie and me. All right, uh, I'm here with my colleague uh, Howie Lempel on uh, February the 2nd of 2020 uh, to have a quick conversation about the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic or apparent pandemic that is uh, perhaps going on at the moment and uh, what, we, what we think is likely to happen. And, um, potential uh, pandemic. Potential pandemic. The- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how we're trying to make sense of all the information that's, uh, that's coming at us in, in papers and, and through the press and so on. Uh, so yeah, uh, welcome, welcome, Howie. Thanks for that. Uh, so this is a slightly unusual thing for us to do, and uh, we should probably have a slew of uh, caveats or uh, warnings at the beginning of this episode. I guess first and foremost is that uh, at least I have almost no relevant experience or training in this area, so unclear why anyone would listen to me. I suppose you have some relevant background. Um, yeah, I guess I worked as an amateur non-expert on bio-risk for a couple of years. Um, that was several years ago, so I can't claim to have remembered all that much. And even (laughs) at the time, that was um, based on the deep expertise I gained from uh, studying Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau, plus economics (laughs) in college. Um, So uh, that's the extent to which I have any biology or epidemiology expertise, which is... Yeah. I suppose I did, a, I did a science degree, I studied genetics, but I don't, don't know that that is going to help me terribly much here, except perhaps avoiding, yeah, the most, most basic of errors. Um, so hopefully, hopefully other experts out there uh, involved in this do know a lot more than, than we do. Uh, if not, we're in deep trouble. I suppose, yeah, if, if you notice stuff that's wrong in this, uh, do, do, do get in touch, because uh, I think we've both been uh, writing a bit about this on social media and getting a lot of uh, feedback from people pointing out uh, the errors that we're making, which is a very useful way to learn. Um, uh, another caveat, I guess, is that we're, we're both very interested in pandemic preparedness, mostly from the perspective of reducing existential risks or reducing uh, like serious global catastrophic risks. And it does not seem to me like this coronavirus is it's certainly not an existential risk. It doesn't even really seem to me like a, like a catastrophic risk. Do you want to comment on that, Howie? Yeah, I mean, that seems very unlikely, especially if you're thinking about uh, global catastrophic risk as something like um, an event that causes hundreds of millions of deaths. I guess it sort of... You know, somewhat resembles you know epidemic scenarios that could be in that range. So it's um, something to learn yeah, from, exactly. And it's also you know potentially a huge humanitarian crisis. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, but don't worry about the end of humanity <laughs> on the basis of this. Um, I guess we're also. I, I said the date at the beginning. I don't normally do that because we're just operating in a 
Uh, I guess at the moment, it's extremely unclear what's going on. It's hard to get good information and kind of every day uh, we're getting potentially big updates on, on uh, what the virus is like and how many people have it and things like that. And potentially by the time this comes out, it might well be substantially out of date as we'll have uh, new information. I guess another thing is uh, in terms of your, uh, your own health, I would probably not turn to Howie and I for medical advice. <laughs> uh, and I guess I wouldn't, uh, for important decisions, turn to kind of any one source for uh, information about, about what to do, uh, certainly, not about, uh, certainly not to us about public health. So uh, if you're listening to this at some later time and wondering what should you do if uh, the coronavirus has reached your city or your suburb, then perhaps uh, find a different and better source of information on how to protect yourself. Um, yeah, we will put links up uh, to a couple of resources that give some advice like that. But um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, whatever the public health authorities are saying is like uh, wherever you are at the moment is a good place to start. Yeah. Uh, I guess there's also uh, an important difference between saying that this um, could become a serious uh, risk outside of China um, and that it's important to prepare for it and saying that it uh, definitely will or that anyone is really at risk uh, today on, uh, on the 2nd of February. Right. If you, um, at least as of today, start going around wearing a mask in public um, and you don't live in China, you are like wasting your time at the moment, <laughs> as far as we know. Yeah. With that out of the way, um, it's kind of a, it's an interesting exercise for a few reasons. Uh, it's always just interesting to try and hone our ability to make sense of like very difficult situations to interpret under a lot of uncertainty uh, where you have like sources of like varying credibility and a lot of different considerations to weigh. And because I guess, yeah, um, if in the future there is a more serious pandemic that is a more serious threat uh, to civilization, then uh, and in the early stages it could look something like this, probably a lot more people dying. But yeah, we could end up in a similar situation trying to make sense of early signs about how, how, bad, is, how bad is a disease. All right, so uh, to open, let's go through some of the basic facts of the disease, uh, like yeah, what it is, how many people have it, uh, yeah, where, where we stand. Uh, uh, Howie, do you want to say, yeah, what, what, what is this uh, and, and 2019 NCOV, I think they've, they've called it? Yeah, so um, again, emphasizing that I am <laughs> not an expert and I'm very likely to get some things wrong, but it is a coronavirus, which is a virus that causes respiratory diseases. One thing it the thing that most commonly causes is um, there's there are strains of coronavirus that cause the common cold. Um, I think it's something like um, like ten percent of common colds or so are caused by coronaviruses. Um, so those are sort of very mild instances. And then there are a couple of cases of strains of coronavirus, both of which transferred uh, fairly recently from animals to humans, um, have been uh, substantially more dangerous. So there was an outbreak of a disease called SARS that is a coronavirus that had something like 10% case fatality rate and was caught by, um, I think, several thousand people. Uh, several years back. I can't remember the year of the SARS outbreak. Uh, 2003 from memory. And then there is a fairly similar incident uh, with a disease called MERS, uh, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus that we're talking about today, is one that genetically looks uh, somewhat similar to SARS. And it most likely originated in a population of bats so uh, transferred from humans, probably because there is a marketplace that was selling um, wildlife as game. And so that's our sort of best guess for where it came from. Yeah. And how many people uh, appear to have it at the moment? I suppose that's now, now we're getting to the stuff that's a little bit harder to estimate. I'm um, just looking at the Wikipedia page about the outbreak here, which has been <laughs> a very uh, a fantastic source of information. Yeah, we'll see. I'm looking at a map put together by uh, some researchers at Johns Hopkins. So we can see if this data <laughs> is consistent at all or if Rob and I end up with totally different numbers. All right. So we've got um, yesterday on the 1st of February, uh, the Wikipedia article saying that there's been 14,380 uh, confirmed cases in China. 
And then it looks like uh, there's another, was it 200 or 300 um, cases outside of China so far? Have you got the same thing? Yeah, it looks just about the same. Okay, yeah, so we've got 14,000, 15,000 cases and I guess 300 or so reported deaths. I guess there's a lot of doubts about the reliability of this information, right? Uh, Yeah, so um, first, I guess when we say reported cases, that's a number of confirmed cases, Mm. um, which is nobody's best guess at the number of people who actually have the illness. So what will happen is you will get um, symptoms of respiratory disease. And at first, it's going to look basically like the common cold or like a flu. You have to show up to a hospital, get diagnosed. Um, The results get sent off to a lab. It's going to take a few days. And then in that period of time, you're a suspected case. And so this is only confirmed cases. There are lots of people. We can talk about lots of sort of the issues of why that would not necessarily be the best indicator of the actual number of people who are sick. Yeah. Okay. So groups that aren't getting counted on this are people whose, uh, say, test kits have been sent off but haven't yet been finished. Uh, People who are sick at home and haven't gone into hospital. Uh, People who have had very mild symptoms and like just think they have a normal cold. Um, I guess, well, yeah, what, oh, people who are incubating uh, the virus but don't yet have any symptoms at all? Um, people who um, are potentially um, infected but just are going to be asymptomatic for the entire duration of the, mm. uh, they just don't get ill. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, so there's a, been a bunch of studies, I guess, like by epidemiologists trying to estimate this, this thing of how many people have it who aren't you know, being counted in these figures, uh, potentially suggesting that maybe we're only capturing, say, a tenth but yeah, potentially only a tenth of the number of people who have been exposed to the virus in total. I think that they're trying to they're trying to develop a model of the virus spreading, and then they look at how many other places outside of uh, its origin, outside of uh, Wuhan, where it's showing up, and then figure out based on that, like how many people in Wuhan should have had it uh, in order to for it to plausibly be, be appearing in so many other places. And then I guess so. There was one paper that came out on the thirty first of January suggesting that about seventy five thousand people. Uh, must have been infected in Wuhan on the 25th of January, which would suggest then that, yeah, we're talking about only measuring about a tenth of the total. I guess as I'm looking at the wiki here, there's another there's another paper suggesting 21,000 infections or so on the 26th of January, uh, increasing to 26,000 by the 27th. So that would suggest we're underestimating it by like a factor of four or something like that. Uh, I guess it's, it's going to be pretty hard to do this modeling. It could be quite sensitive to a bunch of assumptions. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so I think... The way that those models are working, or at least a big component of it, is you can get data on total number of people who have left Wuhan um, and showed up uh, in other countries over a period of time. Um, And then the number of those who have been confirmed as um, having the virus. And uh, unless you have some reason to think that like those people are way more likely to be sick um, than people actually in Wuhan, you can get like a guess then of the percent of all people uh, in Wuhan that have the disease and then sort of back out a number. And yeah, there are all kinds of problems. We don't know if we're catching all of the cases of people who are sick, um, who leave the city. And yes, yeah, so all other kinds of assumptions going into that. Some interesting things to note are that about 99, because most of the cases in China are still in Wuhan and about 99% of all confirmed cases are in China. So there's been an impressive amount of containment, I guess, of this disease to China. I suppose one thing is, uh, you know, even if a million people had it in China, that's only 0.1% of the population, and what fraction of them would naturally be leaving China over a period of a few weeks? Potentially be quite few people. But also there's been, you know, lots of, lots of quarantine or the places where the most people have it, so relatively few of them are leaving that area, let alone the country, and then flights are also being cancelled and things like that, and people are being scanned at airports, all potentially uh, limiting the spread further. So we've only had a couple of hundred cases outside of China, and I think only one death so far, the first one was today, of someone in the Philippines. Yeah, I think that's right. 
All right, so a super similar question is uh, how contagious is it? I suppose the last I looked at this a couple of days ago, people were saying that each person who was getting out was infecting about 2.5. I mean, it's very hard to estimate this uh, for all of the reasons above, but uh, thinking on, on average, the estimates were that they were infecting about another 2.5 uh, people, have you seen anything? Any more uh, more recent estimates of this, like uh, R zero figure that everyone talks about? Yeah, so I guess the estimates that I have seen um, kind of range from like one point eight to like four point zero or so. Mm. Um, and I think the sort of current best guess consensus with a ton of uncertainty is about two point three. Okay. Um, yeah, nice. and so um, just to be clear, I think. Often people, um, so this, this number of like the average number of people that someone infected then themselves infects called um, R0 or R0, um, it's often treated as like a sort of property of a disease. Um, and it's actually just like totally contextual. Um, so, you know, if you're in a city that's like really dense, you're going to infect a different number of people on average than if you're somewhere else. Um, and so with like, this is the sort of like estimate of how uh, contagious this disease is like at this time with like a particular level of interventions mm. in this particular place. Yeah. So I, I think the people who estimated four uh, uh, took that back, I think, after some further modeling. At least there was one paper there was that a, initially there said four. There was a four. second uh, estimate of four that's more recent by, um, uh, I think, some scientists in Hong Kong, either in Hong Kong or in China. Okay, so... Uh, so we've got these like pretty wide range of estimates, but I suppose the hope is that the quarantine uh, efforts that China's putting on, underway, it's like basically shuttering most businesses, shuttering most schools, not allowing people to travel very much, canceling flights. The the hope it, on their part, I guess, is that this will push the R0 to below one, and then you'll start to see uh, the number of new cases over time declining, and eventually you could you could kill it off like we have with some other diseases. Yeah, so I guess trying to see whether that figure goes down would be pretty important to measuring, like, is there any chance of actually putting the genie back in the bottle here? So I guess some of those interventions are meant to sort of decrease the r not in the places that already have a big outbreak, um, which I think is mostly right now um, central China, but I think increasingly some other parts of China. And so things like closing schools, closing workplaces have that intention. And then there's a separate set of interventions that are like more along the lines of internal travel restrictions that basically prevent people from leaving the areas that are most infected. And those actually might not have much of an effect on the average number of people that mm. someone who's sick infects. It does potentially keep the the disease to like an isolated place, which I guess right. eventually would decrease how many people get infected, just because eventually um, nobody's susceptible anymore. Yeah. Okay. So uh, yeah, and how how is it spread? Uh, I guess we think it's spread through. I suppose obviously you make out with someone <laughs> and they're sick. You're gonna you're gonna get it. Uh, um, I suppose it's spread through coughing, uh, like directly coughing on someone, uh, you might spread it. Uh, what else? Yeah, so I think um, there's actually been a lot of statements I've seen online about this that all seem way too certain to me. And so I think that the answer is basically that we don't know. So I think we're fairly confident that it can be spread by sort of uh, like droplets of liquid that like are like fairly large um, that you sort of like cough or sneeze out. So if like you actually just like directly sneeze on someone and it gets into like, you know, uh, gets into their body, like that's definitely a way to spread it. Um, then there's sort of like a lot of open questions about, you know, if uh, virus particles land on some surface or on a doorknob, can the virus sort of live there and then be passed on to another person that's called a fomite? Um, sort of more concerning if that is the case, because it makes it a lot harder to prevent 
uh, the spread. And then there's also a question about, you know, how airborne is it? So it can be anything from, you know, you can only transmit it by literally coughing on someone in a way where like they will know that they got coughed on to, you know, maybe it can hang around in sort of smaller aerosol particles. So, you know, like, uh, sort of like impossible to see, like, uh, particles of liquid that could even be in your breath. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it goes all the way to, the, to it being like airborne, where like people like many feet away can sort of catch it from you. And I think the, we're pretty sure it can be spread by uh, droplets. I think it's looking likely that it can be also spread from um, contact with surfaces, but I think wouldn't be surprised if that estimate like totally changes. And I think we like really don't know about the rest. Okay. And what do we know about the, the incubation period? I know there's been a whole bunch of debate about this, but I'm not sure whether we have much clarity. Yeah. I'm not sure that I remember the last estimate that I saw, but I think it was something like an average of six days or so um, with a range that goes from like two days to something like 10 days or so with like at least I think one case that was 14 days. And just to be clear, the incubation period is sort of the time between when you get infected um, and when you start showing symptoms. Yeah, is a, is a long incubation period good? I guess it, it slightly cuts both ways. It means that it potentially slows the spread of the disease because it's like each cycle of replication is taking longer. On the other hand, I suppose if it's transmissible during the incubation period and the incubation period is long, then that's terrible because you're potentially passing it on to lots of people over this long period of time. I guess uh, it also means that you have to potentially watch people for longer. Um, or you've got like a more contact tracing to do and then like following up, like holding people for potentially two weeks uh, to see whether they show symptoms, uh, which is a lot of effort. Yeah, so I think basically like you probably don't want one that's literally zero days. Mm. Uh, and then from there, it yeah mostly depends on, in some diseases, you can be um, contagious during the incubation period. And that's sort of particularly scary because it means that you can not, know that you have the disease, not know to like take like hygiene precautions or isolate yourself. There's no way for uh, people to, um, you know, like notice at an airport and then so anything like that. So that leads to it being transmitted more. So the extent that that's the case, then the long incubation period becomes a little bit scarier. Yeah, and there's been a few reports of cases where it seems like the virus was transmitted while someone was was in the incubation period. But I guess we don't know whether that is common or, you know, an unusual occurrence. And I think the public health people have been saying that typically, even in uh, with, with diseases where you do have transmission during the incubation period, that tends to be a relatively small fraction of the transmission. Because if someone's asymptomatic, that suggests they're not producing tons of viral particles. Uh, so even if it can happen, you know, most of the transmission is probably with people who are you know, coughing everywhere. Yeah, I think the head of the infectious disease uh, section at NIH uh, said that there has never been a, a big respiratory outbreak. Uh, or outbreak of respiratory disease that was primarily driven by asymptomatic infections. Mm. But I guess it, it wouldn't be great if that was contributing to the to the spread, because uh, I guess it would make it much harder to uh, quarantine people. We wouldn't know who to quarantine, yeah. <laughs> so it makes it makes containment trickier. All right, so million dollar question that is uh, requires kind of us to know all of the previous things in order to properly estimate it is uh, what's what's the fatality rate or what's the case fatality rate of the disease. There's potentially a very wide range of estimates you could come up with for this. I suppose uh, there, there was one paper that uh, I found slightly alarming uh, early on, which was look, looking at 100 early cases of people in Wuhan who showed who presented in hospital apparently uh, having the disease and had been tested and confirmed to have the disease, of whom 11% uh, died. Um, but that is almost certainly far too high an estimate. Uh, yeah, do you want to talk about that for a bit? Yeah, so the consensus among, I don't know, like epidemiologists on Twitter, which is about the best that we've got at the moment, um, <laughs> is like something less than 1% to 2%. I think the real answer is that we really don't know. 
what we can do so far is we have a number of people who have been confirmed to be sick, which, as we said, is definitely an underestimate. Um, and then we have a pretty good estimate of the total number of deaths, because that's um, reasonably easy to track. Although even there, um, people can die of pneumonia, and nobody knows that this was the cause. Um, and so we can say what percent of the people who have uh, been confirmed have gotten sick, have died, and um, I think that that number is something like 2%. Mm. Um, do you know if that's still right? Uh, yeah, I think it is something around 2%. Yeah. Yeah. And so then there are all kinds of uh, problems with that number. So maybe the biggest is that, you know, as we said, the total number of confirmed cases. So number one, it's much smaller than the total number of cases. And number two, the cases that get confirmed are usually going to be by far the worst cases. Um, it's the people who show up to the hospital. It's the people who get admitted to the hospital. It's the people who, even if the hospital is running out of diagnostic kits, they think you're serious enough to use one. And so the death rate among people who actually get confirmed is likely to be a lot higher than the death rate among everyone who has the virus. And so there's this open question about, are there tons of people out there who are getting like a moderate version of the virus um, who are way less likely to die? Or is the actual fatality rate something closer to um, what we've seen among the cases that have been confirmed, which would be scary and closer to 2%. Yeah. So among that, that original group of 100, I think like over 50% had like serious comorbid conditions like diabetes or other, other respiratory problems, uh, which is probably why, you know, if they get this, uh, if they get NCOV, then uh, they're much more likely to show up to hospital because it's like it's more serious because they're like unhealthy to begin with. Uh, so that's one issue. So there are ways that we can end up undercounting it. I guess in particular, lots of people still have it, uh, but, uh, you know, they haven't had it for very long and, and they may yet, uh, may yet die. Uh, and they're not going to be counted in the death, uh, death figures. Yeah, so it seems like um, the people who have died from it have died, uh, I think, on average, like a while after they started showing symptoms. And so, yeah, among the people who um, have been confirmed, like this, just this early in an epidemic in general, you learn about new cases way faster than you learn about um, you know, the outcomes from people who have those cases. Yeah, so I guess it, it seems like 2% would be uh, if it does turn out to be 2%, then that would be unexpectedly high. I guess we wouldn't be too shocked if, in fact, way more people turned out to have it than we think. And, in fact, the true fatality rate is more like 0.1%. And, in fact, most uh, there's just way more cases where people are getting it, and it's like a cold, and, and, and the typical case is that you just don't have very serious symptoms. Is, is that right? Yeah, I think that that sounds about right. Um, something that, to me, really sort of drove home the extent to which we don't know is, so the total number of deaths as of now is 305. Um, the total number of people who are known to have recovered, which means that they've a couple of times gone through diagnostic tests and been confirmed to not have any of the virus left, is 350. Um, so almost the same number. So it basically means there hasn't been time for people to recover yet. So we just don't know how many people recover well. Yeah, I guess I find it hard to believe that there aren't probably a lot of people who are like past the point at which we, you, know, you would ever expect them to pass away from this. Uh, but they are not yet counted in this uh, fully recovered thing because, you know, they're still somewhat sick. So it both yeah. seems possible that a lot of people recover and are just never tracked mm. um, because it seems way less easy and just important to hospitals <laughs> to, like, track the recovered people than yeah. the people who die. And, yeah, also there could be people who are clearly not going to die but still have, um, you know, some non-zero viral load and so aren't counted as recovered yet. All right, let's move on and talk about uh, whether we're successfully controlling it. Because as we said, quite a lot has been done uh, in, in China. They've taken, like, I think some of the most serious you know, measures to prevent the spread of a disease that have kind of ever been taken. Uh, it's like yeah, shutting, like shutting up down much of the economy, basically, and much of the travel throughout, throughout China. 
I guess, yeah, what, what evidence is there that uh, the spread is slowing versus not slowing? Even if it was slowing down um, in some sense or if control was working, um, you still might expect the number of cases to be both increasing over time and even sort of the number of new cases every day might be increasing over time because you just have more people sick, which means there are more people spreading it. Um, so I think a, a thing that you want to look for is basically like, you know, is it increasing exponentially? So is it increasing by sort of the same percent every day? And um, for a while, it looked like we had some good news. So for the first week or so of it, there being sort of double-digit cases, looked like every day we had almost 50% more cases. And then sort of over the last about uh, five days or so, um, it sort of declined. And now it looks like every day you sort of have about 23% more cases than the day before. And so to the extent this data is accurate, it seems like at least some good news. I think we don't really... So there are a whole bunch of reasons to think that this might not be accurate. It could just be the case that, and indeed, we, I guess we think it is the case that they're running out of diagnostic capacity. So they're just kind of maxed out on how many people, how many cases they can confirm each day because uh, they only have so much capacity to manufacture the, the kits that so sequence the RNA or well, whatever method they're using to confirm that people have coronavirus. Uh, so I think they can only test, what, 8,000 people a day? Did you see something suggesting that? Oh, I didn't um, see a number per day. Okay, yeah. But yeah, um, apparently it's sort of standard for outbreaks of this size. That's not like every single hospital has like a diagnostic kit just like sitting there ready to go. Mm. Um, there's no reason that they would, um, especially for a novel pathogen where they're actually making a new, diag new diagnostics. So there's a period where it might look like the growth is slowing down. But actually what's happening is they just can't diagnose people as fast. Yeah, so I guess th this would be nice. This would be great news <laughs> if it were true. But I think we have reasons to to be suspicious. You, you've I've, I've seen you've been using some numbers on suspected cases, which actually might be more accurate now. Uh, do, do you know where you're getting those from? Yeah, so I think the suspected cases come from the WHO situation reports um, that they every day put out. Yeah, that's where they come from. All right, Howie and I just went and checked this, and uh, I guess in the in the WHO situation uh, reports on this novel coronavirus, until the 31st of January, they were also every day reporting uh, a suspected cases number, uh, which hit uh, 15,200 uh, on the 31st of January, with, I guess, 9,700 confirmed cases that day. But they've stopped tracking the suspected cases uh, for some reason. Possibly it's just like impractical, or they think it's too inaccurate or something like that. Hi listeners, uh, Rob here. Just thought I'd add that we found that the National Health Committee of um, the People's Republic of China uh, has been continuing to put out suspected case numbers. So uh, as of the 1st of February, they've got uh, 14,380 confirmed cases and 19,544 suspected cases. So the ratio of suspected cases to confirmed cases uh, hasn't, changed, uh, hasn't changed all that much. They're also listing uh, 2,100 cases as severe, so that's uh, about one in seven of the confirmed cases so far. It's also worth noting that uh, apparently only people in the suspected criteria are getting tested at this point. Uh, testing takes about a day, and it looks like maybe over half of the people who have suspected cases uh, are being confirmed. Uh, that probably suggests that there are a lot of people who aren't getting tested who uh, also have the virus, though of course we, are, we don't know exactly how many. All right, back to the conversation. I saw a graph yesterday of the growth in cases outside of China, and obviously the numbers are way smaller, uh, but I guess that did seem to still be increasing exponentially, kind of at about the same rate, which I guess perhaps is what you might... Ex well, actually, no, I, I guess I would expect it to be leveling off potentially. Well, so some people actually say that that's 
what you should be using to mm-hmm. estimate whether or not it's being controlled. Ah. Because in China, they'll be hitting capacity at mm. diagnostics. Yeah. And in other countries that only have a few cases, they won't. And so some epidemiologists, I think, actually use those as sort of like the best, although incredibly uncertain estimate of sort of the real growth. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so yeah, that was just on the same kind of exponential curve. Although I suppose, yeah, again, we're talking about like pretty low numbers of new cases every day. So, uh, and there's probably a lot of other effects going on there. Yeah, and also right now, most of the new cases in countries other than China are not necessarily like new people catching the disease. Um, There have been some human-to-human transmissions outside of China, Mm -hmm. um, but not a ton. It's mostly people traveling from uh, Mm -hmm. China to other countries who got sick in China. And so it's sort of like a different dynamic yeah. that it's actually measuring so it is uh yeah it's, it's actually quite Im- impressive that as far as we know there's been very little transmission outside of china um i guess at least if that's true then that's great news right um but i suppose it's possible that we're missing a bunch of cases because uh, yep, they right. just haven't become visible yet is there any any news on kind of what what treatments might work or how, how they're m- making progress on vaccines uh, i haven't been following that yeah there's a little bit i should caveat that this is like both particularly important and particularly uncertain but there are reports from a couple of doctors that there are some antivirals that seem to be uh, experimental antivirals that like um, are, I think, mostly not ready for use uh, among humans, although maybe some of them are, um, that they've used for people who got really sick and have um, seen some success with. Um, I don't think we know a whole lot about like exactly how much that helps. Um, and in general, um, antivirals, unlike antibiotics, uh, are like usually not incredibly helpful. They don't just sort of like uh, necessarily cure the disease, um, but that's at least hopeful. And then there are a whole bunch of candidate vaccines, vaccines often that were developed with SARS in mind. And this is close enough that they can sort of have a map for modifying it. But um, I think best guess is like a really ambitious target would be that there are um, vaccines to start testing in several months, that'd be like a huge success. Um, And that would probably mean that like, they are ready to scale out uh, more than a year from now, because they have to do all that testing and the manufacturing. So uh, there is going to be like, I think a pretty unprecedented amount of resources in trying to sort of uh, end up with a shorter timeline. But I think we should not expect a vaccine for more than a year. All right, let's talk about some comparisons to uh, other pandemics over the last century. I guess the, the most obvious comparison is to SARS, this uh, uh, thing in 2003, similar, yeah, same strain that I guess infected about 8,000 people in total, uh, mostly in China, but a little bit in uh, uh, Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, I think a few other places. And they managed to basically kill that off. Uh, I, I don't remember the, all of the details about how they did that. I know they were doing a lot of quarantining and contact tracing, but basically over a period of a couple of months, uh, it went from like growing a lot to actually just dying out and we haven't had it reappear. And to me, it's really surprising whenever we can contain sort of any respiratory virus that um, is transmitted through things like droplets in the air. It just seems so hard to prevent people from coughing on each other. So, yeah, it is pretty incredible. Yeah. So I guess that one had it's apparently quite a bit of a higher fatality rate. And I guess it must have turned out that it was not it was not super more transmissible than what it appeared that there weren't a lot of asymptomatic cases out there because otherwise it just would have been unfeasible to control it. So this was one where it's hard for us to tell whether it's the case that it's significantly more uh, transmissible, more contagious than, than what it looks, in which case the fatality rate is a whole lot lower, or that, in fact, the fatality rate is about right, and, in fact, there, there aren't other people who, uh, who have it beyond the ones that we're measuring. And I guess SARS is one that was more towards that side, 
where in fact uh, all of the people who had it were kind of presenting in hospital because they had serious serious symptoms. And as a result, uh, you had a shot at containing it. Although had it not been contained, the fatality rate might have been very high. Um, yeah, so the case fatality rate among sort of known cases of SARS, I think it sort of differed by location. I think it's about 10%, um, you know, which is really scary. Yeah. Um, I guess, yeah, MERS, this Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, is another variant on this coronavirus that has never really reached many people and never had, like, sustained human-to-human transmission. But I think every so often it transmits from camels to humans. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think the case fatality rate for MERS is actually a bunch higher than for SARS. Yeah, it's a bunch higher, but I guess, yeah, not not super contagious, or at least not not so far. Yep. They managed to, to bat that one down each time. I guess Ebola, people remember, it's cropped up a few times. That's one that's a lot less contagious because it's not a respiratory virus. So you need uh, bodily fluid contact. So uh, that's one that we don't really worry about in a situation where you have proper uh, sanitation uh, and like people are aware of how to avoid catching it. It doesn't really seem like you can have sustained spread uh, if people are taking the appropriate precautions. I suppose on the other hand, <laughs> the case fatality rate for Ebola has been incredibly high, like as much as 50% sometimes. Yeah, and I think um, so. part of it is about sort of appropriate precautions. And so often the way that Ebola is spread is through the way that people handle people after they've died. And so ritual funerals, and then they um, come into contact with the person's blood, and that's the spread. But also it's the case that um, the sort of conditions in the country um, make a big difference. And so the other major place it's spread is within healthcare settings and within hospitals and a lot of um, doctors and nurses get sick. Um, I think that's probably not about like appropriate practices, but it's just about the fact that like in a poorer country with like fewer resources uh, and also in the sort of midst of a a huge outbreak, um, it's just very hard to avoid having a bunch of people get contaminated. But yeah, in a a ritual country with just uh, much more medical capacity, it's very unlikely to. Yeah. Uh, so I guess that's one that, well, I suppose the first time it cropped up, we might have thought, well, maybe a whole lot of people are having mild symptoms, they're, they're getting this virus, but in fact, they're, uh, they're not going to hospital because it's fine. But basically, that doesn't happen at all. If you get Ebola, <laughs> you are definitely going to end up very ill. And it's like basically always a life-threatening condition. Uh, although, yeah, for some people, uh, less so than others, but uh, you're not going to think you just have a cold. <laughs> all right. So, but on the other end of the spectrum, I guess we have swine flu and seasonal flu which I guess turned out to be very transmissible and well, basically consistently turned out to be not possible to control. And I suppose initially with swine flu, we tried to do quarantine, but gave up on that fairly quickly and just accepted that it was going to spread everywhere. On the other hand, the case fatality rate is very low, like well below 1% uh, pretty consistently. Yeah, um, so that's right. So you know, many thousands of people globally die of flu every year. Um, it's sort of one of the sort of consistent epidemic that causes the most deaths, but the a uh, big thing that's going on is just it, it spreads really widely. So I think every year, um, something like 10% of Americans on average, those sort of variation year by year, end up getting the seasonal flu. And so it's incredibly infectious. I have no reason to think that in other countries it wouldn't be sort of a similar amount. But yeah, the case fatality rate is sort of much, much lower. Yeah. So I guess I think there's a decent chance that this will end up looking more like that, more like a flu that uh, if we are in the world where, in fact, you know, 100,000 people have it now or 200,000 people have it now, it suggests it's like it's, it's quite contagious. It's spreading uh, probably beyond our ability to contain it at this point. But that also implies that the case fatality rate, rate might be like well below 1%. And in fact, it just, uh, well, I mean, many people will, will die of it, but uh, I guess... Uh, it kind of caps out what you know how much can this <laughs> if if, it, if the case fatality rate is only 0.1 percent then kind of only 0.1 percent of the population at, at most can die of this thing and of course even like a majority of people won't catch it anyway so i guess that in some sense a positive scenario 
Yeah, I mean, um, I think it would be really bad to have an extra uh, flu-level um, pandemic in a year, um, and especially one where you don't have vaccines. But you know, there's a big difference between how scary that would be and, you know, if the case fatality rate does end up being like about 2% and it sort of circulates the globe, um, that's obviously um, a lot scarier. Yeah. Uh, so one that ended up uh, being both highly contagious and very fatal was Spanish flu, which I guess is one of the worst pandemics we've ever had back in two, uh, sorry, 19, uh, 1918. So that one spread almost everywhere. I think it affected like some significant fraction of the world's population. And what was the, what I was think the case? It was almost 50%. Right. And what was the case fatality rate on that? I think it's somewhere between one and 10%. Yeah, I think that that's about right. There's like a bunch of debate about that. And I think we don't quite know um, exactly how many of the deaths were due to that disease. But I think it's something like uh, 1% or more of the global population died of the disease. Mm. Yeah. So I guess that would be a worst case scenario where ultimately the case fatality rate is in the you know, several percent level. Uh, and, but we also fail to control it and it does spread everywhere. Uh, which I guess is unlikely, but conceivable. And I suppose perhaps that's where most of the damage occurs, where we get like tens of millions of deaths from this in the next few years. Yeah, I think that that's right. That would be sort of the really bad scenario. Yeah. So there's this, there's this meme out there at the moment that uh, it's, it's uh, a bit silly for people to be freaking out about this because kind of more people will die of the seasonal flu. I guess I think this meme isn't super smart because <laughs> one thing is we kind of know what seasonal flu is like because that happens every year. So we're already very familiar with it and we have a pretty good sense of how many people will die of that every year. But as we've just kind of said with, uh, with NCOV, we, we, we don't yet know what the fatality rate is and we don't yet know how contagious it is. So it's possible that it will end up being much worse than seasonal flu, uh, although it's also possible that it will end up being much less bad and could just die out completely. Uh, yeah, do, do you agree with that take? Yeah, I think that that sounds right. Um, so I think you just um, you know want to prepare for the sort of unlikely but possible scenario that it ends up being uh, worse than flu. Um, but also, even if it's flu-like, you know, the world takes enormous precautions mm. to prevent and sort of mitigate the spread of flu. And so um, it's still like you know, not sort of like civilization-threatening, but it's still like a, a pretty awful event that's worth yeah. serious preparation for that would suck yeah <laughs> all right let's move on to uh, an even even more speculative questions which is i guess trying to forecast yeah the likelihood of different kind of outcomes what <laughs> this is a very hard question howie but i guess yeah what do you think is the likelihood that we will ultimately bring this under control and say in six months time that we won't be getting new cases uh, like we managed to do with with sars over the last uh, or over a couple of months in 2003 i guess i'm a bit pessimistic about this uh if you look at uh, the rate of growth in cases uh, comparing SARS over time with uh, NCOV, it's uh, night and day. Uh, like, yeah, NCOV is just like shooting up uh, very quickly, or at least like was over the last few weeks. Uh, whereas SARS, uh, even at its peak, was spreading relatively slowly. Uh, so, so that's one difference. I guess also it does, like if you believe this epidemiological modeling, uh, there's a good chance, you know, 100,000 people already have been uh, infected with it uh, to some extent, which uh, compared to, I guess we think 8,000 people ever uh, were infected with SARS. And we have probably now a reasonable ability to, oh, there probably aren't a lot of like undetected cases of that from back in 2003, because uh, we did manage to like quarantine most of these people and, and trace them. So it seems like a heavy lift uh, if 100,000 people have already been infected uh, and the number is increasing by a substantial number every day. I, I'm not, I'm not an expert in this and it does seem like there are epidemiologists or people in public health who still are aiming for this scenario where we do bring it back under control. But I guess uh, it seems kind of more like a 20% probability to me, although I'm super uncertain about it. Yeah, um, I think my guess would be something similar. Um, you know, intuitively, 
things that are this contagious and sort of spread through, um, you know, coughs and sneezes, given just how sort of globalized the world is, how much people travel, it just seems incredibly hard to prevent it from spreading around. Um, that said, I think I would have like predicted that SARS would have kept going for longer than it did. And um, the folks at WHO seem to, at least in their public statements, say that they still think it could be contained. And I think it is the case that the sort of things being tried uh, are basically unprecedented. And so it's hard to know if they'll work. So um, I think there's just never been a um, quarantine of like a huge region um, in sort of as serious of a way as China has done. Um, yeah. And just, just to be clear, they're quarantining uh, 45 million people, uh, like over quite a large region. It's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's, a big, yeah. it's a big thing they're doing. Um, and so maybe a distinction that makes sense to make is between quarantine, which means sort of restricting the movement mm. of people who are well, mm. um, who just might be sick, and not even people who you know had contact with a specific uh, sick person, and isolation, which is sort of much more common, which is where you take someone who you know is sick or who you know was exposed and who had contact with a sick person and ask them particularly in sort of a much more targeted manner um, to isolate themselves. And so, yeah, so this kind of like quarantine of um, tens of millions of people, um, I don't think it's been tried really since I think the closest is like the Spanish flu. And even then the numbers weren't anywhere close. Um, then in addition, all the sort of other non-quarantine things that China is doing, all of the attempts to um, uh, do like sort of social isolation, just um, keep people you know, out of the streets as much as possible. Um, I think that those are basically unprecedented also. Yeah. So uh, I've got this uh, tweet here from Helen uh, Branswell, who uh, yeah, is a journalist with quite a bit of expertise in the area, who uh, yesterday, actually no, two days ago, t- uh, tweeted, the WHO 2019 NCOV update notes that the emergency committee still believes containment can work. Uh, I'm, pu- I'm puzzled by the continued messaging of that scenario. Uh, given that some cases are very mild, it seems super unlikely that all exported cases have been detected in other countries. Uh, so I guess, yeah, pessimism from her. So it's to, to take seriously the, the, the scenario in which this would work. So it's one thing would be, it's possible that it's mistaken that there's 100,000 cases. In fact, the, the total number of actual cases is maybe only you know, 20 or 30,000. So we're capturing a decent fraction of them. Maybe most of them still in Wuhan, all these areas where they're taking serious measures. And I guess I was seeing... Yeah, tweets from people in China in other cities saying basically no one's going out. People aren't going. They're not socializing. They're not heading. They're minimizing leaving the home, which I guess uh, really could tamp down on the spread. Uh, and I guess if you can, let's say the you know the original R zero was like actually on the, on the lower end. It was like actually two to begin with, and now with all of these measures to stop people from having contact with other people in these areas, maybe they can push it below one. And then that gets us, you know, yeah, at some point kind of back on the thing where the number of new cases will actually just drop until eventually it hits zero. Seems hard, but I guess it's yeah. not, it's not, it's certainly not conceivable. I guess you have a couple of other factors going on. So another question is um, whether it can sort of be contained in one area. Um, and so you've had over the last few days, a bunch of countries implement the sort of most serious travel restrictions that mm. I think we've seen uh, in a very long time or probably at least since the Spanish flu. And so um, a lot of countries are just no longer letting people or several countries are no longer letting people um, who have recently spent time in China into the country. Um, so to the extent that that actually prevented anyone from spreading it to other countries, um, it's like another way it could be contained. Um, I think that the sort of conventional wisdom among most epidemiologists is that this is a bad idea. Hmm. Um, I guess there are models suggesting that sort of at most it slows down the speed of the epidemic by a few weeks. Um, and meanwhile, it both imposes like huge social costs um, on people who are not allowed to travel where they're trying to travel and sort of provokes like ill will 
um, mm. uh, from country to country. And when you really need sort of diplomacy and cooperation on tamping down the uh, epidemic, and you need also just supply chains to keep working, mm. um, there's sort of a concern concern there. But to the extent that you keep it in a particular country, uh, that you know maybe prevents at least a global outbreak. And there's a question about is it just already too late for that to happen. And we have seen, you know, uh, hundreds of cases outside of China. And so uh, one theory, it's like the genie's out of the bottle. I think something that we don't really know is how many cases, um, so we don't know how many cases they're just undiagnosed are in other countries. And we also don't know how many cases it takes to sort of generate a wide outbreak. Um, when there are only a few cases, the public health interventions available to you are much better. Yeah. So you can literally find every person that the people who are sick came into contact with, ask them all to isolate themselves for two weeks, and like maybe just sort of cut it down. And you take their temperature every day, see if they're developing a fever. Um, so you can really <clears throat> trace all the contacts. Once it gets bigger, you just don't have the resources to do that. So yeah. it's possible that um, uh, given there are only a few cases in uh, most other countries, um, that'll sort of be cut off that way. Um, yeah. I did see like a model recently that said if there's one case in a country, she expects something like a 25% chance of a large outbreak. Um, and once you have three cases, it's more than 50%. So to the extent that that's right, um, you know, well, I think all these travel restrictions are then sort of worthless and bogus. Yeah. Um, and it's just going to sort of spread everywhere. Yeah. It's an interesting question. At what point do you give up? Because all of like just shutting down the Chinese economy is extremely costly. Um, shutting down trade between countries, movement between countries, all of this stuff is very costly for all the reasons that you gave, let alone just like the, the panic that it inspires in people, like the psychological fear. Uh, and in as much as like at some point we might just have to concede that we're not going to be able to contain it, at which point you might say, well, yeah, all of these quarantine, <laughs> just like shutting down everyone's normal behaviors isn't worth it because it is going to reach like most places eventually. Because I mean, there are reasons for delay. One thing is like, wow, we might come up with a vaccine, figure out better treatments, like get more information about it. Um, also like, the more spread out the outbreak is, uh, the more, uh, the less overwhelmed the healthcare system is. So we'd probably rather that it moves slowly rather than quickly. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, it d- does become a, it becomes an issue for like food security if just like countries aren't trading for you know, months at a time. Yep. And then I guess a couple of other big issues. One of them is um, the WHO is sort of historically, um, so I can do this thing where it declares an epidemic, a public health emergency of international concern, which happened, um, I think, a couple of days ago. And it's often criticized for taking a really long time between identifying that uh, outbreak is really serious mm. and actually making this sort of declaration, which leads to um, uh, sort of an obligation for other countries to help out. Mm. Um, and one of the reasons is because the countries that have the outbreak um, put a lot of pressure against the WHO doing it because they are worried that if it happens, other countries will use that as an excuse to then um, sort of cut off travel from that country, mm. um, potentially cut off trade. Um, and so if you do that, you then create an incentive next time for a country to sort of hide the data about outbreaks. Yeah. Yeah, it's understandable. But uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very much out of my depth weighing the costs and benefits. Yeah, here. I have no uh, idea. It's, it's, it doesn't seem obvious on its face. Um, another thing that seems um, uh, like it pushes against doing this is just um, even if you can imagine some countries sort of just like successfully um, preventing anybody um, from the places with like the biggest outbreaks today mm-hmm. um, from entering, I think it's pretty hard to imagine all countries doing it. Mm. Um, in particular, um, there are uh, millions of Chinese people in uh, uh, countries that have like uh, worse functioning health systems than like you might expect in the US or the UK, um, in Ethiopia. Um, and so um, it's sort of a little hard to imagine like how um, a country like Ethiopia prevents the spread of a disease like this. Um, yeah. And sort of once um, it's spread in like 
um, a whole bunch of other countries. It seems like pretty hopeless to just like don't let anyone who's entered any of those countries enter anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. In as much as like, let's say that we can contain it mostly to China uh, for, you know, the next few weeks or months. If it does end up infecting millions of Chinese people, I just really don't see how in the long term you can contain it to China. It's like just trying to like cut off the entire country from the rest of the world for months, years. It's, uh, I mean, it, it, wouldn't, it, it wouldn't work and it wouldn't be worth it either unless the fat- case fatality rate was, was really high. Um, yeah, it seems right. It would have to be uh, really deadly before that would be worth it. And it seems really hard to make it work. And it would also create a lot of ill will. Yeah. Um, but um, to the extent that it is sort of really successful in the short term, um, which seems to be not the conventional wisdom, but uh, could be right. Yeah. Um, then, you know, could be really valuable. All right. So we're a bit pessimistic on uh, the ability to, to get us down to like zero new cases. Um, but I guess there's a lot we don't know. Uh, so we like nonetheless place a bit of a, like outside view, you know, sig- significant possibility on that happening. But let's, let's consider the, the other side of uh, things. So let's say that it does run out of control. Uh, it spreads to like to, to most countries over the next uh, year or two. I guess like how many fatalities could we conceivably be looking at? Uh, I suppose, let's say, uh, I guess at one end, let's say that the case fatality rate falls to 0.1%. Uh, and a billion people get it over the next few years. Um, so it like starts looking like a flu strain or something like that. Um, or I guess like a, an unusually contagious flu, I suppose that would have to be. Uh, also 0.1, I would have thought was high for seasonal flu. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose, well, one, one thing is like the... Uh, the, the, the case fatality rate and the contagiousness are negatively correlated. So we can kind of consider two sides of the spectrum here. One where the fatality rate is low, but the contagiousness is very high. Um, or an alternative one where it spreads probably probably more slowly. And, and we do more to stop it. But the case fatality rate is more like 2% or 3%. Um, I guess in which case you could still end. Yeah, I guess. So then we can imagine that 100 million people get it, 200 million people get it over some period of time. And then you get like 2 to 4 million deaths. Um, yeah, that's right. This, yeah, I suppose these aren't actually the worst case scenarios. I suppose the worst case scenario would be that we've mismeasured both the contagiousness and the case fatality rate. So let's say like tons of these people who uh, have gotten over the last week or two, like a large, a much larger fraction of them die than what we expect, but also like 100,000 people have it. Then I guess we could be talking in the tens of millions of deaths. Yeah, so I guess... Um, uh, but, but that requires a lot of things to go the wrong way. Um, I guess there's uh, another... Uh, distinction that might be important to make is there's, um, they're, you know, um, have similar sort of causes and are similar, but there's a difference between, um, you know, how many people currently have it, mm. which is one open question and how, um, like contagious it is, yeah. which is a slightly different one. Mm. Um, so I think that the scenario with the data that we would be very worried about, um, is, um, you know, even if it's the case that sort of the reported cases currently, the confirmed ones are sort of the only cases, um, it still um, seems to be increasing at a rate of like um, still like 23% per day. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't take that long for that to still spread yeah. globally. And so the scary thing would be if that data might be right, but mm. if that data is right and the case fatality rate that we see of 2% is yeah. right, um, uh, like that's that's a also a pretty terrible scenario. Yeah. 
I guess uh, the reason, uh, so, so these things are related because in as much as it has already spread to more people, that's an indicator that the R0 is higher than we thought or the level, yeah, it's like spreading more more profligately than we thought. Yeah, I guess uh, um, there's sort of two things that you might be worried about. Um, one of them is sort of like at this super early on period, um, you know, how, uh, what was the R zero? Like how many people, uh, got it? There's a second question, which is, um, which, uh, pathogens also vary on, which is like, how hard is it to like bring down the R zero? Mm, um, yeah. so, you know, the R zero might not be incredibly high, so there might not be that many people have caught it, but if it's also impossible or like really hard to bring it down below one, and then just like a slightly slower moving epidemic that infects, um, a huge number of people. Hmm. Um, so it is the case that the more people that currently have it, the, um, uh, more likely it is that, um, it's super infectious, but you yeah. can still have the problem. Yeah. Um, I guess, I think the thing that's interesting to note here is that it's both possible that it will ultimately kill very few people. That's like, you know, more than 10% probability. And there's probably more than a 10% probability that it will kill millions. So you just end up with like a very, a very spread out, uh, you know, you know, forecasting curve here, but I guess, uh, because kind of diseases tend to go one of two ways. They either like die out or they spread very widely. Um, the middle ground is less likely. And I suppose then there's a bunch of uncertainty about the fatality rate. Yeah. Uh, but it's unusual in normal life to have to forecast. I suppose maybe you get this with businesses where you're like, well, either it will go bankrupt or, or this startup will become like a huge company. Um, but that's perhaps not the world that we're used to thinking of. Like when we're thinking like, what will my friend do? It's like, will they either go to sleep or will they travel to the moon? <laughs> uh, the world tends to be like more restricted. Uh, but in this case, we need to uh, just have like very broad credences probably. Um, yeah. And it's I think really hard to communicate about that because uh, when people sort of hear the really scary scenarios, um, I think it just... Um, sort of really natural to focus in on them. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of folks are really worried, I think, rightfully about creating panic by talking about those scenarios. Um, on the other hand, the fact that, like, um, best guess might be that this looks like another seasonal flu, which is tragic, but not yeah. something to panic over. Um, so. uh, like, it's not the whole story if there's also some non-negligible probability of it being substantially worse. Hey listeners, it's uh, Rob here recording uh, a day later. I just wanted to add a bit of a discussion about some of the uh, aggregated forecasts produced by the service uh, Metaculus, which you can visit at metaculus.com. They pull together uh, forecasts from uh, hundreds of people, uh, giving extra weight in their results to people whose uh, forecasts in the past have proven to be uh, prescient. In this case, uh, as of right now, uh, their 25th percentile estimate for the number of people who will be infected, uh, confirmed to be infected with NCOV in uh, 2020 is 109,000. Uh, the median is 424,000. The 75th percentile is a lot higher at uh, 40, uh, 4.5 million. And the 95th percentile estimate, if I'm reading this correctly, is actually uh, 1 billion. So uh, you can see you have a 2,000-fold uh, uh, difference between the uh, median case and the 95th case, which I guess just goes to show uh, how uncertain things are at the moment. There's a different collecting forecasting task on how many people are likely to die as a result of NCOV uh, during 2020. Uh, in this case, the, the 25th percentile is 1,600. Uh, the median is 6,500. Uh, the 75th percentile estimate is 50,000. And they think that there's a 2% chance of more than 100 million people uh, dying. Though I wouldn't uh, place too much weight on that upper bound, as there's relatively few forecasts at that level. All right, back to the discussion. I originally started looking into this because I was curious whether I should do anything. Um, I guess my conclusion has been that as of today, I shouldn't really be doing very much. That uh, you know, there's, lo there's lots of risks in life. There's lots of things going on, uh, things that could go wrong. Uh, 
this one is like an interesting one to track and I guess it could get a bunch worse, but I shouldn't be taking dramatic action. Uh, but perhaps there is a few things that I've thought that I might, might want to start to do. Uh, do, do. Yeah, do you want to comment on that? Is that kind of the same broad, broad conclusion that you've reached? I guess I feel um, pretty unsure. Um, I think that... Um, so as of today, I think that people in, um, Rob and I both live in London, um, people in places like London that have seen, um, I think there have been no cases in London yet and like mm -hmm. two in the UK. Um, like you're just not at risk right now, um, or not a serious risk that's worth doing anything about. Um, and the question is, you know, does it become harder to do something about later on and how much do you prepare in advance? And I feel pretty unsure. Um, but, um, I think I landed in a fairly similar place to Rob. Um, so I think it's, there are certain things that, um, I have not previously done, um, but that I think are sort of, um, a good idea to do, uh, regardless. And I think I've at least used the salience of this outbreak as a way to sort of motivate myself to do some of, uh, you know, those basic things. Yeah. So I've bought a bunch of extra food, uh, which I think probably won't be necessary here, but, or won't be helpful at all, but there's like some chance, I guess, that you could end up with, uh, I suppose, difficulty accessing food if there's, if, if there's a big epidemic that passes through London. I guess, uh, I suppose we both think that just for general reasons, it makes sense to have like about two weeks worth of, you know, calories uh, stored in, in your house because it's just like gives you some robustness against all kinds of disruptions to food supply. Yeah, it's not that unlikely that sometime in your life, um, you get caught up in like a bad hurricane or like a earthquake or like um, some sort of disaster where like you're really glad that you have a couple of weeks of um, canned food, which doesn't mean it's like probable, but like it's not that costly to have a bunch of canned food and pasta around. Exactly. Um, so the probability doesn't have to be that high before it seems worthwhile. Yeah, uh, I just like added it to my to my shopping order, a whole bunch of extra pasta, uh, stuck it in a box. Uh, <laughs> it really doesn't cost very much money at all. So I suppose, yeah, even though that doesn't seem uh, super useful, the fact that it's so so easy um, makes it uh, possible to... Yeah, have you done anything other than that? Um, yeah, so the uh, US government has a website, which we can put up a link to, that has sort of a recommendation of like emergency pack that um, uh, basically everybody should have. Um, and so I sort of use this as an opportunity to, um, do what I probably should have done already and, uh, bought most of the things in that list. Yeah. What, um, what kind of stuff is in there? I didn't look at like, it. Stuff like, um, batteries else was there. Uh, they tell you to get a radio, mm. um, and the food and water were like the big ones. Um, I think that there were sort of a couple of other things in the list. Okay. Um, so that's the main thing. Um, the other thing that you really want to do is sort of have medical supplies on hand. Mm. I think it's also just a good idea. So, um, you know, like. Uh, have some Advil, have some like cold medicine, um, which uh, seems like a good idea in general and then a particularly good idea if there end up being sort of um, shortages, if you have a sort of uh, uh, a big problem to everybody at the same time uh, goes out to try and buy something. Yeah. Okay, so that seems reasonable. I guess I'll take a look at that website and think about maybe maybe one radio for the house is enough. But <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've I've tried to buy a whole bunch of uh, hand sanitizer, which uh, fortunately I got in before other people because it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, out of stock in most yeah, places. Yeah, so at that's the, moment. the other thing is I bought a ton of um, hand sanitizer, um, also some uh, uh, sanitizing like spray. Um, I guess, yeah. Is there anything else? Uh, I suppose for people in Wuhan, it's a pretty different story, right? Uh, so there, it just do probably does make sense to do as much as you can to stay in your room, not have contact with other people until this passes through. Um, I suppose, which suggests that it would have been nice if you planned ahead to have enough food such that you don't have to leave the house for some right. period of weeks. 
yeah, which is guess like why yeah why we are keeping this food so that if like London London is like the location of a new uh, disease, which is very unlikely, uh, but then we would have the option to not leave the house. Um, yeah, and then um, other things that make sense for um, people in uh, Wuhan are like um, they are now. Um, uh, mostly when they go out wearing masks, um, which I think it's super controversial, like, um, to what extent if you're, uh, someone who's currently healthy in the midst of, uh, epidemic, um, does it even help to wear the masks? Um, I think it's sort of like some evidence on both sides. There are different kinds of masks that offer sort of different levels of protection. Um, but it seems to be a consensus that like, um, you know, if an outbreak gets as bad as it is there, um, that that's worth it. Um, but there's now a huge uh, global shortage of uh, masks. Mm. So I think they're now rationing them in Wuhan and like every household gets like five masks or something. Um, uh, and I think hospitals in China are also starting to run a bit short. Yeah. Um, so I guess my, my take is that given that it's controversial, uh, whether masks are that useful and that it's going to be like hard to get access to them and probably other people need them more than you. Uh, I'm not planning to, to use masks anytime soon. Yep, um, I think that's... I guess right. So, um, sometimes the advice is that you should do it if if you know that a family member has this thing or if they're very sick and you're caring for them, then it, then it makes sense to wear a mask. Uh, that makes sense. I suppose to be honest, uh, maybe I'm engaging in motivated reasoning here because I hate wearing face masks. <laughs> I find it very uncomfortable. Well, um, to be clear, I think um, right now nobody yeah, thinks no. that you in yeah. London you should be um, wearing a mask, and um, the thought is just that it might be very hard to um, mm. get one once an outbreak starts. Yeah. Um, I think. Um, if you are someone who's um, particularly vulnerable, so has a weak immune system for some reason, immune suppressed, um, if um, you're like um, older or live with someone who has uh, an immune condition or is older, um, it makes more sense to sort of have masks available ahead of time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, something, uh, an article that could be really useful in the future is this um, piece in Foreign Policy by Laurie Garrett. Yes. Um, yeah, she's spent decades, I guess, uh, actually traveling to epidemic zones because she's, I guess, a journalist and an academic uh, who studies epidemics and uh, public health and contagious diseases. Uh, and she says that despite the fact that she's gone to areas, say, where people have Ebola or, you know, have other diseases like SARS, she went into, like, places where uh, people had SARS, spoke to people, I think, who had SARS. She was not worried about contracting it because she has this list of all these behaviors that, she's engaged, that she engages in, uh, which I guess we need not go through uh, here. Um, you can just uh, read that article. But she seems like it's 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 interesting that yeah even even knowing that you're exposing yourself to people uh, you can like be ne- you can be pretty confident that you're not going to get sick uh, if you if you are willing to go through <laughs> these this list of ten yeah, things. Yeah. So um, the thing that we haven't mentioned because it's like sounds trivial to mention, oh. but actually isn't is incredibly important. Wash your hands. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, which all the public health people say like all this mask stuff is sort of um, uh, like the wrong place to place your attention because the most important thing to do is wash your hands sort of all the time um, and don't touch your face. And if you are in an epidemic, like uh, stay a certain distance away yeah. from other people. Yeah. I mean, this is seems to be good advice just in general in life. But yeah. I suppose it's a lot easier to motivate yourself at, at a time like this, or especially if an epidemic is passing through your city, if, in as much as you can get out of the habit of touching your fingers to your nose and your eyes and your mouth, uh, you probably will get less colds and yeah. less likely to get the flu. And you'll also be less likely to get yeah, any new diseases. So. Also get a flu vaccine because like um, flu is, you know, still shitty to get and incredibly yeah. contagious. And um, uh, it's, um, you know, much less deadly, but it is um, a pretty big uh, risk to older people, to immune compromised people, to um, uh, babies. And so you don't want to spread it to them either. Um, yeah. You also don't want to 
um, have the flu while you have uh, some other <laughs> illness. And so yeah. also if you're just trying to sort of protect yourself from like this novel coronavirus um, and prepare ahead of time, uh, not getting the flu is like a decent start. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of hand sanitizer because I get a bit sick of washing my hands all the time, but you can really just like, uh, you know, r- 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 put the hand sanitizer over your hands every uh, 30 minutes. And I think that's probably a pretty significant help. Uh, sneeze and cough etiquette is the other big uh, one. Yeah. Uh, don't sneeze into the air and also don't sneeze into your hands, which are then going to touch other things. Um, yeah. Sneeze into like your clothing or your elbow. Yeah. Uh, very good advice. I guess yeah, one, one thing that I've wondered about but I haven't really looked into is um, let's say that I was in London uh, but I was like 70 and not in great health. Uh, like should I consider leaving London at some future time uh, because I would like, say my, my case fatality rate if I were to contract the virus uh, and it would be widespread in London would be a whole bunch higher, potentially you know, 10 times as high as it would be for you and I. I suppose if I had a place where I could easily go outside of London, um, where it wouldn't be that inconvenient and I could just you know, be in my country house <laughs> for, for a few weeks or months. Um, that would be nice, but I suppose most people don't have that, and it's potentially quite a big inconvenience to, yeah, so to, to plan to do that. Quite a big inconvenience. I don't have a great sense of like um, when it would be worth the cost, and then um, I'm hesitant to uh, even sort of um, like speculate on it mm. because um, it's. I don't know how you think about the ethics of this, but um, once um, you know it's. Um, uh, prevalent enough where you are that you might want to leave. Mm. Um, leaving does make it more likely, like you could have it and not be yeah. symptomatic yet. It makes yeah. it more likely that you bring it to another area. Um, and so, so, yeah, so the case where it might be ethical is if you're doing it ahead of time, although then, uh, like, would you really be motivated? Yeah, you to have do to it? be pretty paranoid to, like, yeah, um, like, yeah, leave your home and, yeah. I mean, there is something good about reducing population density. Like, if it was easy for a third of London to just get out, uh, then that would reduce the transmissibility. There'd be fewer people around in less close, close contact. Uh, I guess the thing is, it's just not really practical to make that a happen in a way. Huge economic that, hit. Exactly, yeah. Um, so I guess probably even there, uh, you, you just uh, think about these other things, like in the, in the Laurie Garrett article, uh, to, to avoid... Uh, I guess if you're um, particularly vulnerable and um, it becomes very likely that um, you're going to be exposed wherever you are... Uh, Please don't listen to us. <laughs> Find yeah. an actual expert and do what they say. Yeah, we're thinking about this mostly from the perspective of like healthy, fairly young people uh, in, in in London, uh, not not from the perspective of someone who's uh, unwell uh, in China. It's probably a very different situation. All right, uh, I guess. Well, one final thing is. Um, the risk of people dying in this individually as listeners is uh, really very low, I think. Um, and uh, do not panic. Like, do not let this, like, ruin your life for the next few weeks uh, through feeling paranoid about it. I think that is, like, not helpful and uh, just, like, more costly than the, <laughs> than the thing itself. Um, yeah, so um, I guess uh, we before sort of complained about people trivializing it by comparing it to the flu. Right. Um, and it sort of is different because there is some small chance that it ends up being a bunch worse than the flu. Mm. Um, the flu is bad um but i think like the most likely scenario is this this looks like um you know at worst like the flu but probably less Mm. and um i don't know i don't think anybody who listens to this like changes their whole life because it's flu season um and so similarly if you end up um changing your whole life or panicking um because of like this novel bug um Mm. it'd be a bad decision yeah all right, yeah, what do we think about the performance of, I guess, uh, or like, yeah, what is being said through the media? Um, okay, yeah, do we think that the public health people are doing a good job trying to contain this? I suppose in a sense, I've been impressed with what China, like how far China has been willing to go uh, to try to c- c- contain the disease at this point. I think a lot of people believe that they should have done, they should have like acted more decisively a few weeks earlier than they did. Uh, but then they've like done a lot uh, later on. 
Uh, yeah, do, do, you have, do you have any take on this? Yeah, so I guess as far as um, how China's public health has responded, um, I feel very uncertain about sort of what's appropriate. Um, I think a lot of people think that what they're doing now is sort of over the top and sort of, um, you know, cats out of the bag. But now you're um, uh, like sort of making uh, Wuhan look like sort of like this and feel to the people who are there, like this like apocalyptic. So um, uh, it's very impressive response. And it seems like, um, you know, maybe it's making a big difference and you have seen less spread outside it than I would have expected. But um, you know, even that's controversial. Um, and then as far as um, more broadly, like how they responded earlier, um, I think a lot of people have been very impressed, um, especially when it's compared to SARS, mm. um, which was not sort of told to the global community for a long time after um, the Chinese government first knew about it. Um, they've also um, like uh, very early on shared with a bunch of other scientists the genetic sequence of the virus, um, which is a really big deal. Um, and so those are big wins. Um, they have not shared yet sort of all the demographic data on cases. And mm -hmm. I've seen some epidemiologists sort of complain about that. Um, and then sort of earlier on, um, sort of, uh, there was a recent article in the New York Times, and sort of assuming that that's right, it looks like there was sort of more of an attempt at a cover up, cover up mm -hmm. and that seems a lot worse. Mm -hmm. So um, I think in sort of late December, there were a few doctors in China who started sending sort of messages to people about like a new SARS-like mm. outbreak. Mm. Um, and I think eight doctors ended up being um, uh, like in prison for a little while for sort of spreading rumors. Um, and they sort of you know, turned out to be right. Um, <laughs> and so I think that that was, you know, a pretty awful thing to do. Um, and uh, it looks like the high court in China has since then sort of reprimanded the police for doing that. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, that certainly uh, is not a win on transparency. Yeah. Yeah, one thing we didn't cover earlier is that there's a bunch of debate about how long this has been spreading around. I guess the standard story has been that it started in like mid-late December, but I guess some people think that it may well have been uh, moving, like it may have started several months earlier, like at least like in late uh, November. Though I haven't looked into this very much, so. I haven't looked into it much either. I think now the story is it probably started um, uh, in like, beginning of December or earlier. I see. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess there is this interesting phenomenon where acting, so acting very early on, you run this serious risk of doing, doing a lot when in fact there's nothing to worry about and it's a false alarm. Uh, but at the same time, the cost of acting early on when you only have a few patients and these might be the only patients that have the disease is just so much lower. So at this point, they're having to quarantine 45 million people and prevent them from moving so costly. Uh, it's like, they, I mean, I really wish, I'm sure that they wish that they could wind back the clock to the 1st of January uh, and like quarantine just a suburb or like be much more aggressive about preventing the spread early on. Uh, but yeah, if you, if you like waiting, uh, waiting two weeks uh, to act is, is potentially really deadly uh, in situations like this. It just, uh, it, the situation can get out of control very fast. Yeah, that's, um, that's right. I guess it means that we probably have to accept a bunch of times that uh, there might be what seems like very draconian reactions or overreactions to, 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 to situations where like most of the time, you know, that like in a month's time, you're going to be, you're going to say, well, that wasn't necessary. Uh, but then it's just so much less costly than waiting uh, for the you know, one in 10 times that it is a serious issue. Yeah. And it's pretty hard to think about um, a couple of issues here. So one of them is you care a lot about um, public health authorities maintaining their credibility. Um, which on the one hand means that if they are seen to sort of slowly roll out news that they already knew, um, mm -hmm. that when they want to say, um, you know, actually like 
the, you know, you don't have to panic because the case fatality rate isn't that low. Um, people are less likely to believe them. Um, also just less likely to listen to advice. Um, you also desperately want people, if they get sick, to be willing to go to the doctor. Um, and if they stop trusting the medical system, they're not going to do that. And then you're sort of really cut your legs out from under you. Mm. Um, so that's on the one hand, an argument for transparency. On the other hand, um, people are really bad at understanding, like, um, uh, small probabilities of really bad events. Yeah. Um, and so if you um, prepare for something, pay a lot of costs, um, and then as expected, it fizzles out. Mm. Um, it's very likely to be seen as a mistake mm. instead of like um, a sort of appropriate response to a low probability. Um, and then it might become a lot harder to do next time. Yeah. Um, I think that there has been some of that with um, the response to 2009 uh, swine flu, mm. where um, people sort of talked about it as though it could be this sort of apocalyptic catastrophe for a little while. Um, and it turned out to be somewhat similar to like a seasonal flu. Um, yeah. And I think that there was sort of some, after that, like pushback on like, we have to make sure we never do this again. Yeah. Uh, I guess it would be great if we could get the public uh, to a point where they understand the nature of the situation where it's like <laughs> probably it'll, zero people will die of this, but there's a chance that millions will die. And so we're going to we're going to go very hard, very fast, very early on. Uh, and we know that there's a 90 percent chance that this is going to look silly after the fact. Uh, yeah, it would be really nice if yep. we could get to a point where people understood that and were on board with it. Um, so it's just it's so hard for them to prove that um, they weren't making an, a mistake even ex ante uh, yep. after the fact. I guess, yeah, do you have any view on, I guess, uh, the kind of the press releases put out by organizations in the UK and Australia and, 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 and the US? I guess I, I feel like we've spent over an hour getting to this point and there's a lot of subtlety here and a lot of uncertainty and they are in a hell of a situation. Like imagine if you tried to summarize all of this in kind of one paragraph or like one headline, which is all that people are going to read. Um, I understand that they have a serious public communications challenge. I guess at the same time, sometimes I find the, the things that they're announcing to be somewhat inconsistent with kind of the primary data that we're getting out of the place where they're, uh, they're trying to say that it's not a matter, of, like not something that people should worry about. But I'm like, how is that consistent with the rate of spread? How is that consistent with the possibility that the, that the case fatality rate is quite high? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that they're in a really tough position because... Um, uh, you know, they have to communicate about this. We know so little and they don't want to cause panic. Yeah. Um, and saying like, you know, well, uncertainty range is enormous. <laughs> um, you're like, fine today. There's a very small chance that this will be like, um, you know, kill millions of people, mm. um, is not going to get a calm reaction. Um, so it's a really tough spot to be in. And I sort of like, uh, don't want to think that I could do it better. Um, but I sort of have, um, a bit of a similar experience of um, feeling like um, being told not to worry and then um, sort of seeing um, how difficult it looks to contain um, and saying like, well, it seems like there's a small chance that this is really bad. So it seems like I should worry a little bit. Just a little it, bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I might, maybe I should read an article about how to avoid passing on diseases. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I read this article this morning uh, from someone who uh, does risk communication, I guess is their profession. Uh, who thinks that some of the communication here has been fairly poor because um, it's not possible to get people not to worry because they because they look at this basic information like you and I do and they're like, it doesn't make sense to them intuitively to say they shouldn't worry. They were saying instead we should accept that people are going to worry and potentially overreact in the short term uh, and instead kind of encourage them to do specific like useful things that will help, like might actually help them to prepare, like, you know, figure out how they're going, like, how can they improve their sanitation in the environment in general. Um, and that just telling people uh, that it's like it's not a matter, there's nothing to worry about, 
is kind of a bit, bit patronizing and a bit misleading. And it may, so like it potentially damages their credibility if in fact it does spread uh, to the United States, if they've been saying for weeks on, there's nothing to worry about. Yeah, um, I found that article pretty compelling. And mm. another point that he makes is sort of, even if you do successfully cause people not to worry, um, it might be better for people to overreact early and then sort of plays out um, than for once um, cases do start appearing locally wherever they are. Um, for them to sort of um, really be caught off guard and to sort of not had an emotional reaction to it yet, um, just yeah. be sort of like totally unprepared. And if what you're trying to do is like um, prevent panic in the case of an actual, uh, you know, really serious outbreak, yeah. um, you might not want it to feel like it's like coming out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. I guess potentially uh, another explanation for uh, some of the odd things that sometimes you get in these uh, press releases is just perhaps that they're a bit out of date. So it's like a process where they start writing, you know, these public announcements. And there's a lot to consider in terms of how are people going to uh, interpret what we're saying. And so potentially they're, uh, they're based on like data that's a couple of days old. And in a situation that's moving so fast as this, if, you're, if you started writing your, <laughs> your press release three days ago, there's a good chance that by the time it comes out, um, it just is going to seem a little bit out of touch. I'm not sure whether that's actually what's going on, but I guess it's one possible theory. Yeah, although I guess um, I think that the public health authorities, at least, like, I hope that the CDC is, like, looking at the daily data as it comes out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure they are internally. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess one thing I've been impressed by is, like, the rate of papers getting out about this. It seems like they, they're, they're, the academic uh, publishing uh, process is really kicking into high gear here, and they're managing to turn around kind of case reports on people with these illnesses within days. And models and... Yeah. Um, uh, you know, like sequencing of um, you know, many different samples of the virus. Um, I think it's been like uh, incredibly impressive as well as the sort of um, uh, speed with which they've at least started to kick into gear the process of um, uh, getting uh, therapeutics and vaccines developed. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'm just about ready to wrap up. We'll stick up links to kind of all of those articles and all uh, as many sources as we can find uh, for this one. I guess it'll be interesting to see uh, how this holds up in a couple of weeks' time, uh, how much cringe there'll be, uh, whether we whether we broadly had things right, or at least we had the spread of uncertainty about right. Um, I guess, yeah, I want to, uh, I suppose, uh, send my heartfelt thanks out to all the people working on this. There's, I mean, medical people just continue to show up to work, uh, despite the fact that it must be really harrowing to be potentially in these hospitals in China. Um, and that they are running, you know, they don't know how bad it is, just like well, we don't know. And they're running a risk of contracting it themselves, but they uh, continue to, to show up to work because it's important to do. And there's people who, you know, I'm sure working like incredibly long days to figure out how do we contain this if it gets to our country, uh, you know, setting up procedures, uh, uh, you know, even if mistakes are being made. Uh, and I'm sure like lots of mistakes uh, <laughs> are getting made under, under this kind of pressure and this kind of uncertainty. Um, I think that I just have a, an enormous amount of respect for all the people who are, you know, contributing to, to trying to do the best that they can to contain uh, whatever this is. Um, yeah, it's just totally incredible. Uh, we'll see if we can get this out uh, ASAP. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting experiment, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how it goes. Uh, our attempt at commenting on current events, yeah. which uh, usually is really uncontroversial and goes smoothly. <laughs> all right. Uh, thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed that uh, impromptu discussion. Just two quick clarifications uh, that we found, learned in the last day. It seems like the question of whether the virus originated at a live market in Wuhan is increasingly disputed, so we can keep looking forward to research on that. Finally, I mentioned that a normal influenza could potentially be a model for how this would pan out. 
Uh, it turns out that the there's two different kinds of case fatality rates that perhaps we should have distinguished in this episode. Uh, one is kind of the confirmed case a fatality rate, uh, which in the case of influenza is about uh, 0.1%, so one in a thousand. Uh, but of course, not everyone who gets the flu is tested uh, by any means. And we found with uh, the 2009 swine flu, uh, where there was a lot more rigorous testing to figure out who had it and, and who didn't, that the, uh, the case fatality rate there, hopefully considering a broader range of people, including those who don't have such severe t- symptoms, was actually around uh, 0.005. So uh, much lower than the the, uh, typical confirmed uh, case fatality rate for for influenza. This episode was, as always, edited by uh, Kieran Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.